James. Um, we are in the book of James, uh, currently walking through a series, uh, verse by verse, through James. As you flip to James, um, chapter 1 is where we'll be, page 1011 in the black hardbacks. Uh, I want to ask you a question. We'll be in James chapter 1 uh, this morning. I want to ask you a question. The question is this, what would you do if one morning you woke up and you didn't know who you were? What would you do if you, if you woke up one day and didn't recognize yourself? You didn't know where you were. You didn't know who you were. You didn't know why you were there. You didn't know what you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to go. And what would your first move be? I mean, you'd maybe look for clues, I guess. See if there's a driver's license on you. Sounds like a Jason Bourne movie. Or what would you do if all of a sudden you couldn't remember your past? You had amnesia. And you couldn't remember all of the people and places and events that shaped who you are to this day. You know, there's this very complex, very interesting relationship between our identity, um, our, our, our ability to recognize ourselves and know who we are, our memory, uh, and also our, our ability to um, understand um, what it is we're supposed to do, our behavior, uh, between our, our, our identity, our behavior, and our memory. Um, there's a movie that I think is uh, an amazing movie. Um, it's, uh, I highly recommend it, it, unless it's graphic, in which case Lindsay wanted you to watch it. Um, she watches some horrible stuff. I'm like, Lindsay, you're married to a pastor. Turn it off. Um, uh, people aren't laughing. That's because they know it's true. Um, so it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but anyone seen the movie? It was directed by Christopher Nolan, uh, Memento. few people, okay. Um, Memento is this kind of mind-bending movie. For those who have seen it, um, you know why some people consider it one of the best films um, in the last decade, two decades. Um, it explores this kind of theme. So this man wakes up, um, and he understands, starts to find out that he... Uh, was in an accident. Um, two men attacked him and his wife, and his wife was murdered. But he suffers from a rare, super rare um, condition where he cannot remember anything that happened after the accident. So when he wakes up in the morning, he doesn't know who he is or where he is or why he's there. Fifteen minutes later, he doesn't know what happened 15 minutes ago. When he's standing in the street, he doesn't know where he's supposed to go or why he's going there. But he's on a mission to try to find the person who murdered his wife. And so the trick is like, how do you do that? How do you, how do you work uh, in a day to compile some evidence and then have it in a place where the next day you have to wake up and start all over from brand new again? And it's very interesting the way he does it, right? He, I mean, he comes up with a com- very complex system where he tattoos himself with information, and every morning there's this routine, right? He's got, it triggers it, and he knows exactly, my wife was murdered, I'm looking for this person, this and this and this. He comes up with codes in his handwriting, because um, you don't know this, right? But, but if you can't remember what your handwriting looks like, someone else could put a note in your hotel room, and it could trick you, it could mislead you. He realizes that he can't call people, he has to see them face to face, because he can tell whether they recognize him, even though he doesn't know whether he knows them or not. 
Um, it's very interesting. What would you do if you were in that scenario? There's a, a book that was written in 2011 called The Sense of an Ending, a uh, very popular book by Julian Barnes, and it explores this kind of relationship uh, between your memory, your personal memory, and then your self-identity. Um, and it explores this kind of fear that memory can be problematic. Um, our memories sometimes can be self-serving, right? Whether consciously or unconsciously. Our memories are, are selective and partial. There are some things we can never forget. And then there are other things that we can never remember. And often we don't know why. And in the book, uh, it's, it's about a man who... Um, is retelling his life. He's an older man in his 60s, and he's retelling his, the story of his life. And as he's retelling it, he gets a copy of a journal um, from his best friend who he had gone through life with, and it tells a whole different account of his life than what he had remembered. What if you found out that all of your past memories maybe didn't happen the way you think they happened? And he starts to have this existential crisis what if I've remembered wrongly? Did I really do that? Did I say that? That's not how I remember that situation. Uh, at one point, he, he says this, Tony, the main character, um, he says, I don't want to deceive myself sentimentally about something that wasn't even true at the time. After he read something um, that he wrote to his friend, he says, all I could do was plead that I had been its author then, but wasn't its author now. Indeed, I don't recognize that part of myself from where that letter came, but perhaps that was simply further self-deception. Do you recognize yourself? Do you know who you are? Do you remember who you are? Do you let that identity influence your behavior? These are the themes that James is going to hit on this morning in our passage, okay? We're in James 1. We'll, we'll read from verse 19 through verse 27. Um, if you'll remember, the book of James this is our third uh, weekend in the book of James is a letter written by Jesus' brother um, to Jewish Christians spread out all over the world. They've been dispersed into the world. They're being persecuted. They're being oppressed primarily economically. So they're being um, lashed out at by uh, rich people and, and being outcast. Um, and so they are experiencing oppression. James is writing and encouraging them. Even though you're going through this hard time, even though you're going through these trials, don't give in to temptation. Keep following Jesus. Um, the special thing about the book of James is while it only mentions Jesus' name twice, it is, I think, maybe the most Jesus-centered book of the New Testament other than the Gospels. Reason being, the book of James is almost completely just a summary of all of Jesus' teachings. Primarily the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we'll get to see that a little bit today. Um, James is pleading with these early Christian communities in the 40s. This is very early Christianity that they would live the life that Jesus had called his people to live. Um, and so um, with that in mind, we, we pick it up in verse 19. James says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. No conjunctions. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness or justice of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
Um, this advice here, these, these first three commands, says, hear this, and then three imperatives, um, one right after another. The book of James is full of these commands. Do this, do this, do this. Um, this advice, if it was followed, would probably save 85% of the world's problems. If people were slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to, to become angry. In fact, we got to remember in James, these are people under persecution and oppression. And so for them, they're in a situation where it's even more tempting to be quick to speak and slow to listen and fast to be angry. James stands in a long line of wisdom prophets, Jewish and um, Greek philosophers, who um, think that silence is often better than speech. James is a little bit different in that he's very pessimistic about speech. We'll see throughout the book. In this passage, James sets up a few themes. He'll come back through, um, throughout the book. Um, and one of them is speech, his, his, his thoughts, his, his ethics of speech. And he's very pessimistic. He thinks that primarily the things that come out of your mouth are going to do a whole lot of harm to the world. And so you need some intense self-control. So he talks about the trigger, right? He's talking about the timing here. When something happens, when you're in a conflict, when something's going on, what are you quickest to do? What's your draw? And he says, go to listen. Not just be silent and think about your reply, right? But listen. How many, how many problems would be solved if people would just listen to each other? And he says, be slow to talk. Talk after you've thought about it. There are very few things that you'll say when you're angry that you couldn't say later in a better way. He says, so be slow to anger as well. There's a reason. He says, because the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. This word righteousness, dikaiosune in the Greek, it can mean righteousness or justice. It's one word in Greek. In English, we have two words for it. You can thank um, French and Latin for that. Um, And so your Bible takes this one word, dikaiosune, and it translates it righteousness some places and justice other places and does you no good at all, Okay. I think it should be justice here, the justice of God. He's saying when you communicate with each other in, in such a violent kind of angry way, that doesn't bring about the kind of world that God wants us to be in. That doesn't bring about the justice of God. I think the righteousness of God here in James in verse 20 is his synonym for Jesus' phrase, the kingdom of God, which is the world on earth as God desires it, his will being accomplished here as it is in heaven. And note he says, it doesn't happen through anger. If you want to see God's will accomplished on earth, if you want to see the kingdom come, Jesus says we're supposed to pray for the kingdom to come. He says, anger is the wrong emotion to get you there. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, Why? Because it's not going to do what you want it to do. If your community that's having problems, anger is not going to fix those problems. If you're relating to the outside world or to people who are persecuting you or to people who are putting you in a tough situation, anger is not going to fix that situation. Despite how it might feel, despite how tempting it might be. 
And I've just got to say, because we're in a political season, things have been rough. Things are probably going to get rougher. Remember what James says here when you hear politicians speak. Anger does not accomplish the justice of God. It doesn't produce it. That's not the path to it. So if you can't listen to other people, and if you can't close your mouth, and if you can't control your emotions, then you're not going to be able to provide solutions and build a community, build a society where there's love and justice and freedom and peace. People who study speech, um, our language to each other, have, have long noticed that there's this curious thing that happens in certain types of statements, certain types of speech. Um, sometimes words work. It's called speech act theory. Sometimes our actual words do what they're saying. I'll give you an example. Uh, I promise you I'll be here next Sunday. Did you catch it? How did I promise you that? By saying, I promise you I'll be here next Sunday. The actual words did they executed, right, what they were describing. Or congratulations on the new job. How did I congratulate that person? By saying congratulations. The words themselves did it. Or this one for married couples. Honey, do you really need to spend another hour on the computer? It's not a question, right? That's a command. Your words are doing something there. That's not an innocent question. That's a get off the computer and help me with the kids. Our words act. Our words work. Apparently it works both ways though. Not only do our words work, and, and this is why James is so afraid of them. He'll talk about it in chapter 3. Sometimes our words get out in the world and we can't get them back and they just go on a rampage and tear people apart. He says they're like a fire. It's like the pit of hell opens up. I mean, James is very pessimistic. He thinks if, if, if you're going to follow Jesus and you want to see the kingdom come, you're going to have to be very, very self-controlled with your speech. Um, to be a Christian is to be someone in the process of learning how to talk. Because before we knew Jesus, we talked in a way that we should not have talked. And I'm not talking about just specific words talking about the way we use words, how we use them to build others up or to tear them down, to listen and build bridges or to divide, to unify. And God's word is supposed to work. He says, instead of letting your anger cause all these problems, put away the filthiness and the wickedness and receive with humbleness the implanted word. God's word. He's speaking here most likely of the Old Testament as interpreted by Jesus. Uh, We'll see later in the book of James, um, he, like Jesus, thinks that the Old Testament um, is completely summed up in two commands, love God and love your neighbor. This double love command. And he says, this word has been implanted in us. And this word is able to save our souls. It's able to rescue us. It's the, I mean, just rescue. And it could be very literal, right? Um, if you are slow to speak to someone who's persecuting you, it might save your life. 
If you're in a relationship, if you're in a community, if you're a Christian community trying to follow Jesus, if you're slow to speak, it might just rescue you. It might just save the day there. The concern is with the the effects. And he says, we've got this word. We have this message. We have these commands to follow. This mission to go out on. He says, instead of getting involved in all of this filthiness, let's receive that with humbleness and let God's word do its work in us and transforming us. And about that word, he continues in verse 22. He says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. There we get this idea of deception. He's already told us earlier in the book of James, don't be deceived. He's worried that, that people will fool themselves. He says, be, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is an interesting illustration. Um, Back then, in the first century, you had no photographs. Um, The world was just a much different place than it is now. I mean, it was just a different environment. Um, So we discovered how to take photographs. We built the technology for it. Then we discovered how to do it digitally. And then we decided the best thing we could ever do is take as many pictures as possible of our face. And, and the history books are going to record a cultural phenomena called selfie. Now, I don't know what people in the first century would have done if they had cameras. They might have looked at themselves. But they did not have such access. Almost none of them had mirrors. None of them most likely had drawings of themselves or could afford someone to paint a portrait of themselves. And so while this might seem very odd to us, it might have actually been the case that you would have been pretty unfamiliar with how you actually looked. The best glimpse you might have ever gotten of your face was the reflection off of water or scratchy, scrapped-up metal. It might be the case that you would look in a mirror and then walk away and not know very much, not remember. And he puts this mirror metaphor in the middle of this message. It's a very clear message, right? He says, um, be hearers and not doers. Um, when you hear the word, when, when you hear a command of Jesus, when you hear an imperative, when you hear something that you're supposed to do or a way you're supposed to live or be, you, you have to put that into action or else you'll deceive yourself. And when he says that here, he is verbatim running on the back of Jesus' teachings. Let me show you this if you'll flip between Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 is the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus probably most definitive sermon. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 and verse 24. James says, be hearers and doers, not just hearers. 
And here's what Jesus had previously said in verse 24 here. Everyone then who hears these words, what words? Well, the words of the sermon he just preached, which, I mean, you could flip back in your Bible and just look at the subtitles. He talked about lust, divorce, oaths, anger, retaliation, the needy, the Lord's prayer, fasting, loving your enemies, being anxious, judging others, asking in prayer, the golden rule. Anyone who follows, who hears these words, and does them, who puts them into action, they'll be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine but doesn't do them, he says, is like a foolish man who builds a house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So James says, be a hearer of the word and be a doer. Don't hear only. And he he gives us this mere illustration to try to play this out for us. And so the idea is a, a guy is apparently looking in a mirror, okay? And he's seeing his face and he walks away and forgets what he looks like. And James says it's worthless, right? What was the point of looking in the mirror? Now, this illustration is actually a little more confusing than it might seem at first. We would expect James to say this. Um, you shouldn't be like a person who looks in the mirror, realizes a button's undone, and then doesn't make the change before they leave. Instead, he says, it's someone who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what they saw. So it's not just someone who examines their own life and doesn't put into action the commands of Jesus. It's someone who looks at the commands of Jesus and then when they walk away, they forget them. They don't put them into practice. He says, the man first gazes into his natural face, but the one who does gazes, looks into the perfect law, the law of freedom. And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who does, a doer who acts, and he will be blessed in his doing. I call this phenomena of hearing but not doing um, the man in the mirror syndrome. We've all got a little Michael Jackson inside of us, okay? Um, we all know that we should make a change. It's got to start with us. We all know that God has some better ideas for our life than some of the things we're currently doing and walking in and situations that we're in, but we haven't made the changes, right? It's almost as if we're not seeing it right, if it's the mirror, or, or we're seeing it, but then we're forgetting it when we walk away. We're hearing, but we're not doing. And I think all of us can, can immediately think of maybe some things in our life where, where we know God's been calling us to, to actually do some of the things he said, and we've not quite gotten around to it yet. If you, if you can't think of some, I can give you some really easy ones. Um, we know from the scriptures, and, and, and hopefully if you've come to the church for more than a week or two, that we're commanded as Christians to go and make disciples, to go and share our faith, to go and have some intentional plan about creating people who will follow Jesus like we do, and then go and create other people on their own to follow Jesus like they do. And we might hear that and hear that and hear that and hear that, and yet someone with the man in the mirror syndrome 
would just never get around to trying something out on Monday. Praying for somebody. Or starting a conversation. He hears and he hears and he hears and he hears, but he never does. Or we know we're supposed to forgive our enemies. And we hear that. But then we see our actual enemies and and we go, that can't be forgiven. And we hear and we hear and we hear and we hear, but we don't do. We have the man of the mirror syndrome. We, we either are not seeing correctly or we're seeing and then just forgetting when we leave. We know we're supposed to live generously. This is why you can have people, um, and I think it's an epidemic in the Western church, who go to church and not just like a once a month, once every three months, twice a year type of thing, but like actively be participating in a church and still have very little life change. Like still look very much like everybody else who is not a Christian. As if the lifestyle of a Christian, the path that Jesus has called us to, is the same as the path of violence and hatred that the world leads us down. Materialism and consumerism. Hateful ideology. And so someone might sit in church for five years, and after five years, their prayer life is almost identical to their prayer life five years ago. Or they they sit for five years, and, and in five years, the way they relate to other people looks the exact same. And he, James is saying it's pointless, right? It's, I mean, it's worthless. It's a waste of your time. Get a better hobby. I mean, if, if you're going to hear, 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 and you're never going to do, if you're never going to let that word work itself out in you, he says it's, it's pointless. It's in vain. It's, it's not going to do what it's supposed to do in your life. And yet, I think, this is the case. Now, I would say sometimes we get so concerned about our own situation um, that we forget that we're not the worst people who have ever lived, right? Um, there are nominal Christians in the church. People who say they're Christians go to church but don't act like Christians. That bothers a lot of us. Um, but apparently there were in the first century too, right? We didn't come up with this trick. Uh, I was talking with someone from the first service who has a few more years than I do, and she was talking about how the 60s, um, the whole political and cultural um, phenomenon of the late 60s reminds her so much of what's happening in this election cycle with the racial tensions and the political rhetoric. And it was interesting to think through, like, yeah, we think this is the worst it's ever been, but for her, this is just like, yeah, we've been here before. He says, if you're, you're going to look in the mirror, act on it. Remember it. Be a hearer who does. So I want to tell you a story. It's a, it's a little parable, all right? I want you to imagine a town where only ducks live. It's a beautiful town. You'd love to visit, but you would not be welcome because you're not a duck. It's called Duckville. And every Sunday, all the ducks get up and they waddle to Duck Church. And they go into Duck Church, 
They waddle down into the sanctuary and they squat in their reserved pews. And then the duck choir waddles in. They all quack some hymns together. And then the duck minister gets up. He opens up the duck Bible. Which there is one. If you, I have a cat Bible in my office, if you don't believe me. I legitimately have a cat Bible. He opens up the duck Bible. And the minister says this to the ducks. Ducks, God has given you wings. You can fly. You can take the wings God has given you and you can soar like an eagle. There will never be another wall that can contain you. There will never be another fence that will trap you in. And all of the ducks quacked, amen. And then they all waddled home until next Sunday. This is the story James is telling, right? Somebody just gets input, 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 and there's no output. And he says, it's, it's, not only is it not accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish, but, but you're deceiving yourself. You're not recognizing who you are, and it's causing you not to act in the right way. He says, you need to examine yourself. You need to look into the perfect law of liberty and then act on it, not forget about it when you walk away from it. He continues on, if anyone thinks he is religious, and uh, James doesn't use the word religious here in a negative sense like we do sometimes. For him, religion is just devotion to God. Okay, so I'm just going to substitute that. If anyone thinks he's devoted to God and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's devotion is worthless. He uses another metaphor here, bridle his tongue. Bridle is what you do to a horse's mouth, right? We'll bring that metaphor back. Again, James is very concerned about your mouth as a Christian. I mean, notice, how strong is that? I mean, as someone who likes to criticize from within, can I say that I think one of the biggest problems Christians have, especially my type of Christian, the type of Christians I hang out with, the type of Christians I'm associated with in the kind of Western world, one of the biggest problems we have is saying stupid stuff too quickly and in anger. And James says, if you think you're devoted to God, but you can't control your tongue the way a man controls a horse's mouth, he says, you're fooling yourself. Your devotion is worthless. It's not there. He says, devotion that God the Father wants, the Father of Jesus, the one who sends the Spirit, the kind of devotion that he wants is the devotion that hears and does, that bridles the tongue. And he says this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Keep oneself unstained from the world. Orphans and widows, both in the first century and still today, are two people groups who kind of um, 
epitomize helplessness. People who, who are voiceless, people who need advocates, people who need someone to take care of them, to look out for them, to watch over them. It's a literary device called a synecdoche where he takes two parts and he's talking about anybody in the world who's helpless. James here again is following Jesus. Jesus who would go so far to say he identifies one-on-one with people in need. In Matthew 25, he says, if you see an orphan, don't help. One day I'm going to ask you why you didn't help me. You see a widow one day and you didn't help. One day I'm going to ask you why you didn't help me. That's how much solidarity Jesus has with the most hurt people, most oppressed people, most voiceless, most trampled on people in the world. James, following after, says that devotion without that is is worthless. In the 40s, when James is writing, up until the late 80s in 1 John, 2 John, the Christian community still has this as a main theme. John writes, if you claim to love God and you see a brother in need and walk by, you are lying. You're lying to yourself and to God and to the world. Devotion that God wants to take care of the people who are hurting around you. Now, it's interesting because he mentions orphans and widows. And, you know, as a, as a person reading the text, you see that and you, you immediately recognize that as, right, those are people groups that represent anyone, right, who's hurting and in need and who needs to be especially looked at, uh, looked over. Um, in the first century, orphans and widows are, are very um, helpless and, and need other people to step in sacrificially on their behalf. Um, What's interesting about this is um, this verse gets used a lot and somehow the church has kind of actually forgotten about widows. Um, in case you don't know, we have someone in the church, Cheryl, who, who is the head of an organization that ministers to widows. And there's this like sad irony that we can like adopt this and look at this and yet, really, the first time I thought about what the church might do to care for widows is when I met Cheryl, and she told me about the ministry. It's like, oh, yeah, they would need people to, to, to love on them. They need some meals and some money and some love and some counseling. True devotion to God, he says, is love to your neighbor actions and speech that bring about the justice of God, putting into practice the commands of Jesus. That's true devotion. That's what God the Father will accept. That's the community that he's looking for. That's the type of individual he's trying to create in us. James says, receive that word. Let it do its work inside of you. And so the question this morning is this. Will you look in the mirror? And what will you see there? What, what areas have you not started to do, even though you've heard and heard and heard and heard? I mean, we can all agree we're all much more educated than we are obedient. 
we know more than we live in a Christian sense, or better yet, we know better than we live. So you look in the mirror and, and, and what is it that you've yet to implement in your life, but yet you've heard and you've had that input, there's just been no output yet. Or you look in that mirror and you see the ideal, you see the law, the perfect law of freedom, you see what Jesus was getting after during his life and with his ministry, what he's still trying to do in the world. And you don't forget it. You remember it. That's the problem. We, we see it, and then we either don't see it correctly or we forget it. We're distracted. We ignore it. Somehow it loses out of our minds. And so we're like the fool who comes every week and looks in the mirror and then forgets what we look like. The ducks who waddle home every week after cheering that they can fly. So will you look in the mirror, and then would you be a doer who does, who's blessed in his doing, who doesn't forget, and avoid being a hearer who hears, but, but forgets and doesn't do? May we be individuals who put into concrete action the commands and teachings of Jesus. May we be a community that takes concrete steps to act and look like the community of followers Jesus desires. And may we interact with the world in the way that Jesus has sent us out to interact with the world. That's my prayer for us. Starts by, by examining ourselves and then by taking a step. Starts by hearing and then on Monday, doing. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time this morning. I pray that you would create uh, in us a attitude and a habit of doing, um, not just hearing and forgetting. Uh, Father, I pray that we would not be those who look in the mirror in vain, um, but those who look in the mirror and make adjustments, and those who look in the mirror and leave and remember. I pray that, that you would create in us some self-control with our speech, that we would use our words to lift others up and not tear them down, that we would recognize at a deep foundational level that anger and violence does not accomplish your purpose. No matter, no matter how badly we want to rationalize it else, elsely, otherwise, it's not how your justice comes about. It comes about through sacrificial love, through listening, patiently serving other people. Build in us a desire to be like Jesus, a desire to live out his commands so that we might receive the life he came to give and help us as we go out into the world to, to pass that life on to those around us. We love you so much. We can't thank you enough for the love that you have shown us, for the life that you offer us in Christ. We want to grab it right here and right now. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.